judgment is forthcoming. Thomas Watson, a writer that I'm going to quote from my compilation, uh, Spurgeon's Sermons, The Treasury of David. He speaks in commentary on the Psalms, and he also quotes many writers, one of them being Thomas Watson. Pardon the Old English, but listen to the depth of this quote. He writes, When a man comes to the sea, he doth not complain that he wants his cistern of water. Though thou dost suck comfort from thy relations, yet when thou comest to the ocean and art with Christ, thou shalt never complain that thou hast left thy cistern behind. Again, when a man comes to the sea, he doth not complain that he wants his cistern of water. Though thou dost suck comfort from thy relations, yet when thou comest to the ocean and art with Christ, thou shalt never complain that thou hast left thy cistern behind. What is Thomas saying here? In perhaps more modern language, if you have a canteen with you and it's running dry, you have no thought to complain if you see a sea of water just over the next rise. That cistern that you carry with you can be forgotten and discarded because the sea in its expanse of water is an untold supply, an immortal source of joy. For those that are in Christ, now in the fullness of revelation revealed in the New Testament and the Old, and for those who demonstrated the kind of faith that David had in the Old Testament, their cisterns were gladly discarded for the hope, for the faith, for the truth, for the promise of a sea in front of them. Though we do glean from our relationships with each other, and as David says in verse 3, for instance, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. But you and I know as a saint, if you know Christ today, or perhaps you know many, even a saint can let you down. Even that cistern at times can be dry. We draw on strength and hope from our relationships here on earth But just remember this, that we have an immortal cistern. We have an immeasurable, vast well from which to draw. We have a sea on the eternal horizon. And if we live like David did, just seeing over that precipice a few more steps, even though death is imminent, when we get to that place, the water that we carry with us in limited measure, the times when we're parched, as it were, to follow the analogy through, will soon be forgotten because they are just a foretaste of what is to come. Yet when thou comest to the ocean and art with Christ, thou shalt never complain that thou hast left thy cistern behind. David's confession is out of the strength of that knowledge now, even as it will be attended by his experience soon once he passes from this life to the next. David is really coming to terms with death, I think, in this psalm. There's many other things that are going on, and we'll explore a few in due course. But when he says, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge, we've learned enough in these first few psalms to know that probably was written during a time when his life itself was threatened. When he goes on to say that the Lord is my chosen portion, my cup, you hold my lot, and he goes on to describe this dependence on him, even a dependence that would be pushed to the ultimate test in verse 10, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One seek corruption. He was likely contemplating real circumstances 
and he would he may shortly die and even if he had the privilege of living a proportionally long life on this earth we all know that death is imminent and any life by earthly measures but a vapor a snap of the fingers just quickly gone and where will we be in that moment well if we have this source of immortal joy that david has as he sits there and wrestles with the reality of death and comes to terms with it, you don't have to fear, like Christian did in Pilgrim's Progress, that the weight of the sin on your back will drop you lower than the grave if you have Christ as your source of immortal hope and joy. A little further along this line, I have a heading for several points. Attaining immortal joy, holding it, Maintaining it, grasping it, attaining immortal joy is contingent on affirming with David the following points. And these are within the psalm itself. So if we can live like David under the threat of death, the reality in front of us, still drawing from a source within fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore, all of his delight being fleshed out in this psalm, in songs, in poetry, in praise, even though his circumstances were dire, if we understand just a few things that he did, I think we can begin to make similar confessions by a life of faith that follows with real footsteps the same heart that this poem was written in. Number one, for David, there are two kinds of people interacting with life. Secondly, a little later on, the second point will be this. There are two scenarios for all to reckon with. And number three, There are two first persons in this psalm. First of all, for David, there are two kinds of people interacting with life. These three main points are very very simple and they're very evident. These first two especially. Number three is a little deeper, but you can see with the fullness of Scripture, it's clarity as well. But under point number one, there are two kinds of people interacting with life. For David, there are only two. Number one, saints. And number two, I'll just use the term false god chasers. There are only two kinds of people that are interacting with this life at any given time in history. Number one, saints. And number two, false god chasers. Secondly, there are two scenarios for all to reckon with. Number one, we reckon with life in time, this life. And number two, we reckon with eternal life. And then finally, there are two first persons in this psalm. Who is writing this psalm? Well, certainly and obviously David But secondly, there is a second first person in here as well, and that is our Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll confirm that by New Testament revelation in due course. As I'm studying these Psalms, I've begun to make a practice of assigning a letter system to the thoughts. You're familiar with poetry and uh, English class or what have you, where you go the A-A-B-B or A-B-A-B rhyme scheme. So the A represents the first rhyme, and then the repeat of the letter A represents when the corresponding word rhymes with it. What I did in this psalm is I used that scheme, but instead of rhymes, attached them to thought. So A represents the first thought, B represents the second, and so on. And I have four thoughts. Four thoughts that I've isolated here. This is by no means an exhaustive way or an authoritative way necessarily to look at the psalm. But it's very interesting and helpful, I hope for you, and I know for me as I read. First of all, in chapter 16, verse 1, consider this as A, the first thought. Preserve me, O God, for in you 
I take refuge. And then the next thought, B, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. Third thought, C, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones. And then finally, D, in whom is all my delight. David is saying these things very clearly. Statements of faith. Statements of real, heartfelt passion. First, he says, Preserve me, O Lord, for in you I take refuge. I'm asking for protection. You are my only safety. Your name is my only strong tower. You are the only bulwark with which I can run behind. Secondly, I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. There's nowhere I can run. There is no legitimacy in my own strength, in my confession. Nothing. I have nothing apart from you. Not only do I need you to preserve me, but if you do not answer my prayer, I am hopeless. However, I trust that you will. Then verse 3, here's the third thought. For as, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones. And finally, in whom is all my delight. So we have A, B, C, and D. Preserve me. I have no good apart from you. Saints are the excellent ones. And whom is all my delight? Now notice A, B, C, and D are reversed in the next verse here. By contrast, David says, The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their name on my lips. That first phrase matches with D, it seems to me. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. As opposed to the previous thought, the saints, for as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. So that remember, for David, there are two kinds of people interacting with life. The one on the saint, in, on the saint category, they find their source of immortal joy. They find their delight, their fulfillment, their joy. They find it among those who confess a like faith in their God, their refuge, their strength, and their bulwark. Not so with the other category, false God chasers. Instead of the delight and the joy and the unity and the courage that you can glean from those that you fellowship with, in the body of Christ, and who know Him, and share a love and a delight in Him. Instead, those who look for joy everywhere else never find it. And instead, having all their delight in the Lord and among His people, their sorrows multiply. Their sorrows are only increased as they almost pathologically, if you will, pursue joy, but never attain. A brief moment only to be deflated even more. A slight uptick in morale only to be crashed at the next turn. An attainment of riches only to find that they don't satisfy. A relationship that you had high hopes for only to be dashed when your expectations fall again. A goal that you finally reached only to discover that what you expected to feel when you got there was totally different than the emptiness you had upon your attaining of it. What is the problem? You're a false God chaser. You have not found that source with the saints. Of all your delight, 
circled around and encamped around and in the favor of and enjoying the presence of the things of God, centered on the fellowship of Him, the thing that binds together the identity of His people. So here we have D and D matched up. Pardon me in my sort of formulaic way of moving through this. But now uh, B or C, I'm sorry, as we move up, all the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones. We can kind of match that with those who chase after other gods. And we've covered that a little bit by overlapping that first point. So in Christ is my only delight, but if I chase after other gods, sorrows multiply. Saints, they are truly the excellent ones, but all others, their identity is found by running after other gods. And then we go up to the next point. I have no good apart from you. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Well, what good does the world seek? Do false god chasers seek in opposition and rebellion and vain attempt contrary to their source of identity and goodness being in God alone? Well, it describes it in verse 4 as drink offerings of blood. I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. So the pagans do offer sacrifices. They do consider religious formalities important. Their ways are attended with religious overtones. There's a lot of ceremony, pomp, and circumstance in the world around us. But for the false god chasers, they'll even mix their offerings with blood, but they will not satisfy. And they will not provide a source of all delight. They will not be a reassuring sense of safety and freedom and contentment and joy. So instead of a confession that says, you are my Lord and I have no good apart from you, there is a drink offering of blood that the, godly, that the godless chase after and the false god chasers never get their God to respond no matter how many hoops they jump through in life. If you remember the great test of the sovereignty of God against the idols of the day where Elijah took on the overriding spirit of the hour and said, I challenge you to a duel. We have two sacrifices set up, 400 some prophets of Baal on one side, one man of God on the other. A sacrifice stoked with all the kindling you could muster from the surrounding wood next to one soaked with water. All of the arraignments I imagine and gold and festooned priests with all of the garb that the that the money of the era could afford there to impress men and to convince the masses that they have some special connection to the divine and they're the great magicians and they're the wise men of the hour. Contrast to Elijah on the other side with just regular robes, a man of the wilderness who trusts his God alone, but not the ceremony and the outworking things to prove himself to others. His heart is in love with his God. As the test goes forward, the prophets of Baal are at a loss. They begin to cut themselves and to cry out. They begin to jump through hoops and do all kinds of sorcery. I'm sure it would have, under different conditions, appeared very impressive to man. But in this hour, if there was no answer by fire, there was no answer at all. And the fire never came, though they cut themselves and wailed and went on hysterically for hours. And then the man of God stepped up, the unassuming 
lone guy against all odds with no purchase with the people, with no majority vote, and he cried out with this heart to his only source. And he said in his confession and his sacrifice that he would not chase other gods. He had no drink offering to pour of blood that he was going to pour out. He was going to make his request and his appeal known to the God of creation that his mercy alone would intervene on behalf of his glory alone. And the fire consumed the sacrifice, the rocks and the water and the drenched meat all in a moment. And the world knew that day which source of joy was immortal and which source of hope was unassailable. And when the true test, be it death or a moment of God's choosing, laid before the man of God, if he stood in faith, God would always prove himself faithful. This is the difference between the two kinds of people and their outworking and their practice and their faith is demonstrated by their works and worship. The difference between the saints and the false God chasers. And I'll let you make your own application on what the priestly garments and the superstitious deeds and the impressive uh, ideology that is purported to the people in that day might correlate to ours. Suffice it to say, if your fellowship isn't with the saints in the land who have in common the blood of Christ as delivered by the Almighty Sovereign God and revealed in Scripture, there is nothing to order your affairs and hope around that can give you joy. It will leave you empty and judged in the end. The final point, A, as we work back up these points, whereas David confesses with the saints, preserve me, and I take refuge in you, my Lord. Preserve me, O Lord, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my God. Not so with the false god chasers. They take false gods' names on their lips. And again, we see by contrast, the sorrows of those who run after other gods shall multiply in verse 4. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out, says David, or take their name on my lips. There is only one name that David will take with authority on his lips, and it's the name of Jehovah. It's the name of his God. It's the name of his Lord. He will not dabble in any other area. He will not cheat himself that it is a source of joy. He will not buy the advertisement of those around him that say, this has worked for our pagan neighbors. Just a little bit can't hurt. You could mix it with your own religion. Everybody's doing it. Rich people have succeeded in following these ways and so on. Not so in David's confession. He knew that even if it cost his life, immortal joy could only be found in a confession on the power and salvation and refuge of his Lord alone. For him, he knew very clearly and expounded in this psalm, there are only two kinds of people interacting with life, saints and false god chasers. Number two, there are two scenarios for all of us to reckon with. As we go through the course of our affairs and reckon with life, we reckon with two scenarios, life and time. Our affairs are day-to-day life, providing for ourselves food and raiment, interacting with our friends or family, and just shoring up for ourselves our livelihood and our existence, the obvious things, the tangible stuff that everyone can virtually understand or relate to. And secondly, we reckon with eternal life. And this is the less, least understood and the one area that's most important but most men are least conscious of. In the first, life and time 
David uses the occasion of dealing with life as the course of your day unfolds. He uses that as an occasion to expound on the second. In other words, he says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones. He's talking about the people that he has things in common with, his relationships with his brothers that also confess faith in the Lord and the like. He talks about the, his uh, day-to-day life in verse 5. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. Lines for me have fallen in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. So notice these common terms and language that everyone would be familiar with that David's using to underscore a point that is lost on most people. Everyone has a portion. They have a cup, or they seek a portion and a cup. A lot. The lines he uses, an inheritance. So portion, cup, lines, and inheritance. All these words would have been very common and well understood in David's day. Portion is basically what you need to get through the day. Of course, cup is similar. Uh, My lot, that which is afforded me in this life by God's grace, what I am given to work with, perhaps my withholdings, my properties, my livestock, and that kind of thing, the things that God has graciously given me to steward. He says something as simple as, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places, verse 6. Like, what are the parameters of what God has put me in charge of? Where has He called me to uphold Him? Could refer to physical property, could refer to influence, perhaps. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. This, of course, a common word referring to the accumulated wealth within a family that is passed on to successive generations. But David, as he's writing these things, don't you get an immediate sense that there's something deeper, something deeper than just day-to-day food that he's talking about? Something far more rich and of inestimable eternal value that he refers to when he speaks of inheritance. For David, there are two scenarios in life that he's reckoning with in this psalm. One is life and time, but he's using that just as language to understand the real scenario of eternal life. He uses the occasion of things that he needs, things that people desire and seek for, as an opportunity to emphasize the less tangible but more important. People who are less conscious of eternal life and do not live in light of the next life as freely and as readily as they do live in light of this life, lose something of the essence of their faith. They're impoverished. They need to have a change of heart, a reordering of priorities. The things that we deal with in this life are an occasion to understand the next, not the other way around. Too much of American Christianity, modern spirituality, is I need to get my spiritual life in order so I can deal with this life. And it really is a misplaced order of priorities. We want a successful marriage or a joyful relationship or we want plenty of income at work so we pay our dues in church. It should be really the other way around. I want a successful relationship with my God. I want to be friends with saints. I want to find my assurance, my refuge, my joy, an immortal source in Him. I'll pay my dues on this earth so I can earn heaven eternal. That's the ultimate prize. That's the ultimate goal. Don't let the two get reversed, David is saying. 
Don't get so earthly minded that you're no heavenly good. Don't get so earthly minded that you're of no good to the kingdom. Don't become so temporal in your thinking that you lose the reality of what is eternal. Those are the things that God truly cares about. Those are the things when His favor and redemption graces something, it lasts forever. And very few things are graced with His redemptive favor. The souls of the saints, they are. Now it begins to make sense in those, when David says, and those and, and such like those are all His delight. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones. Things anointed with the favor of God that will endure forever. Lord, let the rest of my life serve your enduring and eternal purposes. These two scenarios, as we begin to use again our A, B, C, and D, if you'll indulge me, when David says in the beginning, preserve me, O Lord, for in you I take refuge, he then expands that in verses 5 and 6. Lord, when he cries out, preserve me, in you I take refuge, what does he mean by saying as much? In 5 and 6, he says, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I was thinking I didn't bring the book with me, but a great sample quote to read would be from Christian in Pilgrim's Progress. Pardon me, I'm reading the book to the kids at night, so it readily jumps into my mind for illustration purposes. But Pliable asks Christian at the beginning of his journey, while the sin is still on his back, but evangelist has pointed him to the way. This neighbor, and of course, analogously called pliable, asks him, you know, what are you doing? Why are you going? And how do you get there? And these type of questions. And what is so great about what lies beyond narrow, yonder, wicked gate, essentially? And Christian answers to him, an inheritance eternal, immeasurable, and he uses phrase, John Bunyan uses phrase after phrase out of the Word of God, to describe something that words cannot quite form of the beauty of heaven to look forward to, a place with no more sorrow, sickness, or disease, where the angels cry with eternal voice, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, a place where the whole new heavens and new earth are filled with His glory and saturated and emanating with the presence of God, a place where the train of His robe fills the temple, surrounds His people, and there is no hiding or escaping the eternal light who dwell, where He dwells in that great place where creatures who were created just to give Him glory surround the throne with intrigue and grandeur and majesty as wings cover their faces and their bodies and they sing and praise and laud and lift His throne and carry it around. And the language of Scripture is amazing as it describes the inheritance that we have as people as his people have to look forward to. The difference between Christian and pliable was, pliable would be, could be convinced, but Christian could not be swayed. Pliable at first was convinced to join Christian on his journey, not realizing the weight of the sin on his own back, and being easily persuaded by the next wind and doctrine that came along. So as soon as they encountered the slew of despond, Oh, here's something of daily life that might threaten your source of joy. He, for the want in his cistern, could not see that sea beyond the next bluff and left Christian in the slough of despond to climb out arduously on his own 
and return to the city of destruction with the false god chasers. And how many of us are tempted to give up on the course? But if we keep in our eye and our view the light of that celestial city the way that Christian did, we can get through our slew of despond and draw inside from a source of immortal joy. And we can say with David that there is a chosen portion and a cup. There is a lot, and my lines have fallen in pleasant places, and there is a beautiful inheritance. And when we say those things, we don't just mean, oh, that a rich uncle that I don't know about someday would die and I could get $5 million, $500 million, or whatever the standard of filthy riches today. When David talks about these things, his lot, his portion, his lines, his inheritance, he's talking about things that, Paul, that John Bunyan, Paul Bunyan described as the celestial city. That in the distance, that which emanates and resonates with the distant glory and majesty of God. And the eye of faith can see, even now, so felt, it, it, even though we feel so short of its gates, life is but a breath. So when David prays that he would be preserved and that he would find a refuge in his God, he uses this language like portion, cup, lot, lines, inheritance to describe what he means spiritually, even as he uses the things of this earth as the occasion to underscore the things that are eternal. Secondly, in, in B here, the second in the, in the uh, progression of David's thoughts, he says, I say to the Lord, verse 2, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. In corresponding verses, verses 7 and 8, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel, In my night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me, because He is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. I have no good apart from you, but He expands that to show that in you I have an increasing source of good, if you will. I have more to love and appreciate, more to gain confidence in, to ground my heart and my conviction, more that gives firm evidence to this well within. Because the Lord gives him counsel, he teaches him the goodness of his salvation on the course of his life. He instructs him to appreciate more out of a love for the moment and for the person of his salvation. He teaches him to appreciate more along the way its implications and what it truly means. So much so that even when he lays his head down to sleep, He sometimes has his own psalms rolling around, as I imagine, in his spirit. And perhaps wakes up with Psalm 23 on his lips, singing a few bars. He has a dream one night when his head is laid on a rock, a little uncomfortable. But the opportunity his spirit takes to instruct him in a few things, even though you're a fugitive at the hand of the king now, remember that you are anointed by my prophet to be king one day. Not just you. Your lineage will endure forever. And one day a Messiah will arise from your lineage who will bring ultimate hope from all violence, all destruction, all sin. Of His kingdom there shall be no end. All governments will rest upon His shoulders. These were the thoughts that might have filled David's heart as it instructed him in the night hour and can do the same for us. I have set the Lord always before me because He is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. The tool, if you will, the implement that was most ready in David's hand was the Lord Himself. The Lord Himself He would grasp before His sword 
before his shield, before his battle plans, when David was walking in the spirit of this psalm, with the Lord at his right hand, you could not shake his faith, no matter how deep the trial. It goes on, these correlations. He talks about the saints and the excellent ones. And then he underscores this more in verses 9 and 10. Therefore, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. You might ask the question of verse 3. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones. In whom is all my delight? What kind of delight is David referring to? He expounds on the source of joy, the bubbling over in his heart at the reality of God revealed. Verse 9, therefore my heart is glad, my whole being rejoices, my flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. He goes on to explain that even in death he has hope. He goes on to explain that he has reason to rejoice because his heart, his flesh, his soul, all of these things, every aspect of his being dwells secure. It really underscores the need too for us to appreciate the earthly fellowship that we have between believers. When we meet this morning, just a handful of us today, I wonder if we walk through these doors with the joyful expectation that upon sharing a conversation with the person next to you or someone else, your heart might overflow and rejoice because you're meeting with excellent ones. You're meeting with those who have Christ in common. We are rare. If you know Christ, and if you place your hope, and if the sum of your identity, your most honest moment when the clouds of sin have blown away, if your honest identity is found in the work of Christ alone, you share that with a precious few. Two weeks ago, we spoke on the narrow gate the way being hard, and those that find it are few, right out of Jesus' great Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. When he was saying these things, he was only reiterating a truth of Scripture that David knew and understood. For David, the saints in the land, they were the excellent ones, his best friends, people of outstanding character. He could actually have a conversation with one of these people without it being a show, false, faulty, self-serving, self-indulgent, a competition, warfare, proving yourself better than the next or whatever else our conversations tend to resort to outside of the glory of Christ. He could actually draw from these relationships delight. For a man like David who lived a lot of his life as an exile and was in his faith very much a loner, he treasured the few that confessed the same faith that he had so highly that he, was, that he drew his delight, his relational affirmation. We all need it. We're created as relational creatures. We have all kinds of substitutes for it in our day, maybe more so than in David's. And like false god chasers, we even run to the internet and chat rooms and hobbies and whatever to get the kind of affinity and cooperation that our soul desires and we feel we deserve. We deserve nothing. True affinity comes from a cooperation between those who love the loveliest thing more than anything else. True fellowship centers around what you have in common, and true fellowship therefore centers on Christ. Earthly fellowship is faith in, in heaven's fellowship and the ties that heaven will bind between us. I will fail you and I will fall short. I will let you down, and there'll be times 
I hope I don't, but I'll probably, maybe even today, break my word, at least in some what I think is a small way. I will continue to wrestle with sin. But as you have a relationship with me, have a relationship in faith that your pastor, who is still a work in progress, will one day be perfect in glory. And have that same faith with your spouse. You are talking to one for whom Christ died that he will suffer through this sanctification process for because what he died to purchase will be perfect. You think you'll have meaningful things to talk about in glory? Yes, I say yes, and for eternity they will flow without end from that well of joy inside. You might feel our well is somewhat small and we have just a few things to scrape together. Prime the pump. Do it in faith. Embrace it anyway. In faith that in heaven that joy and fellowship will overflow to such a high degree that you can't even imagine how fulfilling it is. And a conversation with one in progress now in faith can be as fulfilling as a conversation with one who has been, uh, has been assumed into glory. It can have that effect. I believe it really can. Our faith can give us the kind of confidence that joy will fill our heart that will cause us to endure when we believe, truly believe, that Christ's blood has purchased all that He says it has. This is the kind of delight that David referred to when he said, In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is a convicting verse in contest. Verse 11 You make known to me the path of life. What is the path of life? One that the saints in the land follow, the excellent ones delight in. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. If David earlier has said, the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. And then he closes his thoughts with, in your presence there is fullness of joy. I wonder if he didn't affirm the very premise of this meeting today, where two or three are gathered. (coughs) gathered in Christ's name, or when those who come and celebrate the finished work of Christ together are here, there is something of great value to be gleaned in fellowship with one another. There is a fullness of joy. There are pleasures at His right hand. And how can we embrace them now? Well, in part, by fellowshipping with the excellent ones. Let it be known at this point that when He says the excellent ones, It's not to distinguish by our own merit that we are better than others. We ought to relate with the world, but we do it in a different sense. We do it understanding that there are two kinds of people in the world, saints and false god chasers. The point is only this. You don't go to false god chasers for fellowship, for encouragement, for emotional resources. You go to saints for that. You go to false god chasers to elevate Christ, to demonstrate the superior joys that are in Him, to witness, to testify, to plead with compassion, and to do it over many hours and through many tears. And it's not necessarily less time spent in so doing. Only be recharged with His people and gain your sustenance from the excellent ones. Only then, as you're out relating with false god chasers, will you have the opportunity to call them, to demonstrate by light and salt what it actually looks like to find your joy in something more substantial than fellowship for fellowship's sake. The last point of this message 
is there are two first persons in this psalm. David writes in verse 9, Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Just as when David is talking about his portion, his cup, his lines, and his inheritance, it's very clear that there's something deeper in the meaning than just I hope my rich dad gives me a rich inheritance or I hope I have really good properties and investments in my life. In the same way, when David says, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption, there's a deeper meaning in this psalm. I would turn you to Acts chapter 2 for the code breaker here. This psalm was quoted in the first sermons that went out from the apostles after the Holy Spirit had arrived and, and given them the power that was promised and quickened their word. And now Peter begins to preach in Acts chapter 2. Notice in verse 25, I saw the Lord, or for David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. For my flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You see, he's quoting from our psalm this morning. Verse 26, You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness in your presence. And here's the explanation from the Apostle Peter to the listening crowds on that great day of salvation. Verse 29, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, verse 30, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he, meaning David, verse 31, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not descend into the heavens, but he himself says, another quote from Psalm 110, I believe, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Verse 36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. Notice the power of Peter's message as he draws from the full scope of history. David saw corruption. Of whom was he speaking? Was he crying out for salvation in his own life? Yes. Was he speaking of another? Yes. There are two first persons in this psalm. David writes it from a personal perspective, but note this. He also writes it as the lineage of Christ, if you will. David writes as the very lineage of Christ. Turn over, if you would, to Acts chapter 13. Paul begins to pick up this message and to preach it as well. He begins to carry it the known world over. It begins to transform lives the same as it did when Peter spoke. 
In verse 33 of chapter 13 of the same book, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Verse 34, and as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in the same way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. And here's the explanation that Paul gives in verse 36. For David, after he had served the purposes of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that though this man, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you cannot be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells you. He went out. And the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. And you see how he began, the God's word began to have an effect and the full, in the fulfillment of what David had, in some ways perhaps unwittingly prophesied in this Psalm all the way back in the beginning of the Old Testament era where God's revelation was just beginning to break forth like the first few rays of a sunrise. That when we see it in the full scope of redemptive history, David was writing as he needed these words, but he was also writing from the perspective of Jesus himself. Here's a few sentences perhaps to explain what's going on in this psalm. <clears throat> At times in the Word, there are redemptive figureheads like David. Abraham was one. David was one. In Matthew 1.1, the writer, Matthew, he introduces Jesus as the son of David and the son of Abraham. These redemptive figureheads, Jesus himself, David in Scripture, are compelled at different times by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to assume a transcendent identity affirming, affirming the covenantal continuity of the whole purpose of God. David's identity, he's writing from the first person, but it's transcending his own king and his own rule and his own life. His, he's beginning to identify with God, the fullness of God's covenant purpose, the fact that one would be born of him that would never die and would never see corruption. David is writing, yes, as a man coming to terms with death, but he's writing as more than that. He's writing as the lineage of Christ himself, almost with a prophetic time suspension. Time set aside for just a moment. The Lord will not abandon the, his soul to Sheol, nor let his Holy One see corruption. There would be one that would come from the lineage of David who would never see hell. Therefore, all in him would never see hell. Amazing. The depth, I have not described it to sufficient detail. I don't know if your understanding is aided very much in what I just described. 
I want to highlight without leaving this message, however, that when David writes this psalm, there's a secondary intangible pen under his that is proclaiming truths that are bigger than him, bigger than history, and can only be summed up in the person of Christ. It's incredible what's recorded here. Jesus, as I mentioned, is referred to as the son of David, the son of Abraham, and later as the last Adam. We read that this morning. The root of Jesse, a shoot that grew up from Jesse, the lion of the tribe of Judah. We, in union with him and in union with Christ, are also referred to as the seed of Abraham. The identity of the redeemed usually has these names attached that remind us it's way bigger than you. This is something that God has purposed from eternity past in his heart and mind and will fulfill in a way beyond your comprehension in the future to such a glorious degree. Only count yourself worthy to be called a part of his huge, glorious, redemptive plan. A son of his, a seed of Abraham, just as David himself writes out of time, affirming a much bigger picture than his own kingdom could ever hope to represent or accomplish. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, your word is so rich that it's fearful for us to even say that we understand it to the degree. In fact, we do not. Though you've given us handles here and there and footsteps to follow as on the path. And by your grace, you've given us enough understanding for those that are in you to have an assurance of salvation and an unwavering conviction in faith. We thank you that the beauty and depth therein contained will be a lifelong pursuit for us. We only pray that that pursuit would be for us a wellspring of immortal joy, that as we embrace your call and as we run to your word, that we would do so realizing that we are digging for treasure, treasure that is incomparable to anything false god chasers could compete with. I pray that we would live outside of time, recognizing that our purpose for being so far eclipses our own life, our own livelihood, in order that we might better serve your kingdom purposes, point with our hands and hearts lifted skyward to the Lamb of God, that we would decrease, your word and will would increase, that we would live, Lord, with a life that would mirror the prophetic time suspension of the authors of Scripture, that there is a purpose and a plan that is so beautiful. May my life only point you toward the source where you can learn and love more. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. If you find our study of Psalm 16 inspiring at all, just encourage you to lift up your